On today's pod, we have Dr. Darius Rakas. For many of you, you won't know who Darius is because he is yet to officially join Ryerson. Like a number of my junior colleagues, this will be an opportunity to get to know them in advance of them coming to Ryerson later this year or early next year. In this pod, Darius shares his personal journey and discusses how he is appreciates process and the little things in life. So please, lean in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Darius Rockus. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today we have a face that won't be familiar to very many of our listeners unless they were on the recent hiring committee. And today we get to introduce you to someone who's going to be a part of Ryerson very soon, uh, Dr. Darius Rockus. Rakas, Darius, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Brian. My pleasure. And tell us, where, where are you right now in the world? And, so, and, and what, what you're going to be doing here when you get here? Yeah, right now I'm based in Basel, Switzerland. Um, and I'm working as a postdoctoral fellow for ETH Zurich, which is sort of like the MIT of Switzerland or maybe even of Europe. And our department, the Department of Biosystems Science and Engineering, is actually a satellite department in, in Basel, which it's a really cool city to be in because it's sort of where you have lots of uh, pharmaceutical companies are headquartered here. So Novartis, Roche, Lanza might be some names that are familiar to, to some people, but we're also like right on the French and German borders. So we have access to like three different cultures and three different, three different styles of grocery stores, cuisines available. The Basel airport is actually in France, is it not? In France, which actually during COVID created a lot of questions for people like, can I get to the airport or not if the borders close? But uh, uh, not so, I wasn't doing any flying uh, during the lockdown. Cool. And so, okay, so and it's the ETH in Zurich. Why, why is the ETH at Zurich in Basel? Or is it, is it, or they don't it's, yeah, we're, it's just, it's just a satellite department. So maybe kind of like how U of T has UTM. Uh, based in Mississauga, but it's still part of the University of Toronto. We're, we're just a single department that's strategically uh, located in Basel. I think we have a lot of partnerships with, with Roche, Novartis, and some startups here in the pharmaceutical and life science industry. So it, it's a good place to, to put our researchers. Yeah, and I was there last year. It is a beautiful town, beautiful river, beautiful everything about it. A little bit pricey. You, so you, you just went through. You just went through a process that was quite well. I mean, it's you're starting your career at Ryerson. So, tell us about when you start and and what that process was like for you. Yeah, so I'll be starting in January 2021, and the whole process. I mean, we can go back to the interview, or we can go back to deciding to be to go into academia. What where do you want to start? Well, let's just start with uh, the interview and, and sort of how, how, you, how it made you feel. Because I think one of the things that we'll, we'll go back to the academia stuff a little bit later on in the pod, but it's neat because it's so fresh, right? Like I, even I forget what it was like to do my interview. Like I remember snippets in my head, but I don't, I remember the feeling. So I guess, how did it, how did it feel this whole process? Because it just completed this. Yeah. Like, it was, it was stressful. So I, I had applied in, I forget the deadline was October, November. And I received an email. Well, I did, I did a, a Zoom interview back when Zoom was this really unknown uh, piece of software. I did a Zoom interview with uh, the hiring committee, all of them crammed in a room. And I did my best to, you know, have my shirt and tie on and, uh, and, and you know, jogging make a good pants. impression <laughs> and jogging pants and make a make yeah. a good impression through uh, through the webcam and then i was actually so my family is uh, located in the gta so we were heading home for christmas and it was going to actually be our first time back since moving to switzerland and i think it was like the day before we were staying at a hotel in the zurich airport and i got an email inviting me for an interview at the end of my the end of my holiday. So, you know, I think it was, you know, the first week in, in January when, when classes started. So I actually spent my whole Christmas holiday in front of my computer with PowerPoint working on, <laughs> on presentations to describe my research, my current research and what I, what I've been doing recently, what I'm proposing to do at Ryerson, as well as brushing up on some of my analytical chemistry for teaching purposes. So I had to give a, a demo 
on sort of like a second year analytical chemistry topic as well. Yeah. And so it was pretty stressful. <laughs> Yeah, and our students don't know the entire process, but there is a the teaching. You have to do a teaching, an open teaching lecture to a wide range of people to demonstrate that. You have to do your research lecture, which talks about what you have been doing. Then you have to do a research proposal, and then you have to go into all of these interview style questions. and And the whole process is very elaborate. And so, and you actually join uh, Roxana Suring, who's also on the podcast, uh, as being my, my because you identify as a chemist. We'll talk more about that in a second, but my junior colleagues so it's really great to have you on board and, and it's really great that, that the process didn't scare you away <laughs> so and it's going to be great having you back here when you do get here so did you always know you wanted to be a professor or did you what did you want to do when you were a kid yeah it's funny actually when um well when i when i was a kid i think you know the first time you're asked that question i think my my brother wanted to be a firefighter and i think i said ballet dancer uh, there's probably something on like the polka dot door or sesame street the previous week about ballet dancers but have absolutely no skill for dance but shortly after i got the offer from ryerson my mom when she was congratulating me pointed out that apparently in the 11th grade i had made a statement that i wanted to be a university professor and spend a life doing research which I don't remember making that statement uh, and it's very funny because there are so many times along the way where I you know, thought, oh, I can't do research or I, I want to quit academia. Why am I doing this? But I think really kind of solidified when I started doing my PhD. I did my PhD at the University of Toronto and kind of didn't know what I was getting myself into at the start. It was just seemed like a, an easy or low resistance option of what to do next after, after my previous degrees. And I had an opportunity to do a lot of teaching really early on as a, as a teaching assistant and really liked university level teaching and identified that, you know, if I wanted to do that, there are kind of two ways to do that in academia, right? That's either as, as sort of like a teaching stream uh, faculty member or, or lecturer or as a university professor, you know, doing, doing the research component as well as the teaching and, yeah, I, I guess uh, through the PhD, you know, the teaching was good. And then I really got involved in a research community, uh, not just locally, but sort of around the world and, and really like participating in that and realized that, you know, there are still ways to participate that participate in that through industry and other jobs, but it's really not the same once you're outside of academia. And so really wanted to pursue uh, an academic career. And honestly, I'm so thankful that I you know, got one of the few jobs in English speaking Canada that was advertised this year. So. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it is an incredible journey when you think about how, and, and a lot of people I think have those doubts where they're just like, why am I doing this? It doesn't seem like it makes any sense. The probabilities are so low, but it's good to get on you to stick it through. And I, I, I completely agree. It, it was teaching it as a PhD student that really motivated me. And one of the things I realized, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail, but one of the things I realized is that like, yeah, there's the teaching stream where you could be doing a contract lecture and it's somewhat precarious or very precarious, I guess. But the other idea is that you don't get this, the opportunity to mentor people the same way, right? Like if I have a lab and a space and a project, that's a much different interaction or it's an additional interaction than just being in the classroom where I can only sort of pontificate. So did you find like, I guess, my question would be, how do you find the balance between those two? And where do you sort of sit on that? You know, what's important? Is it research or is it teaching or is it both? And how do you, how would you break that down? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, I think, first of all, I think I struggle at mentorship in the lab, or at least formalized mentorship within the lab at the moment. That's something, you know, throughout the PhD had opportunities to work with undergraduate students, summer students, thesis students, and, and work with them. And, and they all had, I would say, I hope they would say that they all had good positive experiences. A number of them were able to publish uh, papers with me, um, but I never really sat down and thought, you know, what am I doing here? Like, what's the goal of, of mentoring these people? You know, at that stage, you know, as a PhD, you're thinking, great, I have an extra pair of hands to, to help me on my project. And so I'd say like really excited about, you know, sort of the classroom-based teaching aspects of the job and have the last few months have been putting a lot of thought into what is it going to look like to to mentor students in the research lab 
And, you know, the research, it's really exciting that you get to go and answer uh, or, or ask questions about the world and, and about science and try to answer them. But I do also recognize that research that happens in a university really has to happen in the mindset of training and equipping people, you know, especially if, if students are coming and paying tuition and to be a part of your lab, they have to get something out of it and not just, you know, their name on a paper. Like it's important for me that they also, you know, grow as individuals and as scientists that they can see, you know, where they were at the beginning in terms of how they ask questions, how they think about the world. And at the end, how that might've changed, you know, at the end of their degree, are they, you know, asking better questions? Are they putting their fundamental knowledge to, to better use to, to ask these, ask these questions? And, you know, are they developing these skills that will, you know, help them in their career and help them create their career rather than just, you know, floating into some job uh, and working for a boss for, you know, for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And, and, and I completely agree. And getting a name on a paper, if, if you're not necessarily interested in academics, doesn't mean a lot, right? But it's the experience and those transferable skills that you develop along the way, because research is still that, right? At the end of the day, it's project-based learning and you can apply all of those, those skills forward as well. There's so much that you do when, when you get to even undergraduate that uh, isn't really content mastery, right? Like, most of my exams in undergrad were essay-based or problem-based. You get into graduate school and yeah, there's content that you have to know, but a lot of it is communicating your findings. Like, you know, can you explain in a, in a group meeting or a, a research meeting with your supervisor what you did, what you found out and what it means? And then not only what it means, but like, where do you go next? And, and all that communication stuff is, uh, and these, you know, transferable or, or soft skills it's something that like you don't realize how valuable they are uh, and how much they take up of your you know daily activities um, until you actually you know get into into doing them. Yeah, and I think in a modern economy where people are moving so much around different jobs and different careers, I think they're so important, right? Because more so than they ever were before, when you could have just been stuck in a in one career for your entire life. Would you say when you were thinking back to your undergrad days, so actually let's go back a little bit farther. Where was hometown for you? <laughs> I was born in Waterloo or Kitch Kitchener. Uh, okay. No hospitals in Waterloo. Born in, uh, born in Kitchener and lived in Waterloo till I was uh, 12. And then okay. my parents moved to the States, to New Jersey. And so I kind of did the last half, you know, grade six to grade 12 uh, in the U.S., um, are so you kind of, are your parents academics or is one of them an academic? No, Why? Why no. My uh, my dad used to work. He's in uh, computers and IT, and he used to work for Johnson and Johnson outside of Guelph, and okay. uh, um, all roads in, in pharmaceutical in the pharmaceutical industry in North America at least lead to New Jersey or California, and so um, he took a transfer to to New Jersey, and and we were there for basically you know, 9-11 until 2008, so Obama. So basically the George Bush years in the U.S. Cool. That's a, that's a, I didn't know that. I don't know a lot about you, but I didn't know that either. Okay, so you, so, you, so you did your high school in the United States. Then you came back to the University of Toronto for your undergrad, or did you go elsewhere first? No, I went, I went elsewhere. I was more or less on track to go to, you know, college in the States, but kind of had this desire to go and do something a little bit different from the rest of my classmates. So I actually, I went overseas to England um, and I went to uh, Durham University in the Northeast of England. And I did, I did my undergrad there, which was, well, I started as a, as a three-year program in heavily on the biology side, doing molecular biology and switched into a four-year integrated master's that was split between chemistry and biology. Uh, and I made that switch after my first year. And so I was there for four years for undergrad and then uh, stayed on for um, a bit of research and did another master's uh, essentially there as well. Cool. And actually, I've been to Durham. Love it. It's, a, it's just a university town. Like it's got a river, uh, I think a big church and, <laughs> and, and a university, a very good one that a lot of people don't, don't hear about outside of the UK. But it's a, it's a fantastic spot. And I know that one of my former students is now doing his PhD there. And Burhan 
Hussein is probably listening, so I'm just giving him a shout out to you. All right, so okay, so Durham, and then then when did you come back to Canada? And then it was University of Toronto, correct? Yeah, yeah. So then, so I said I started. I was doing some research after my undergrad, and basically, I'd, I'd started a PhD uh, in Durham, and was sort of being an international student. Uh, it can be very difficult from a funding perspective, uh, usually anywhere in the world. You know, I, I know international students in Canada have this uh, problem, and I had the problem in the UK that um, I was ineligible for a lot of funding. Um, so we managed to have some funding for the first year of, of a PhD, and my supervisor, you know, assured me that of course we will have uh, we'll have funding for you know the remaining two or three years after that, and very quickly got the sense that I wasn't going to get that support, and so decided you know it was time to you know. Uh, finished my time in Durham, um, wrote up for a master's, and then came to U of T in 2012, in January, to start my PhD in the Department of Chemistry there. Very cool. And who did you do your PhD with at the University of Toronto? Yeah, I did my PhD in the lab of Aaron Wheeler, uh, and he works in sort of an interface between analytical chemistry and bio, bioengineering. Um, I was more on the analytical, uh, analytical chemistry side, um, working in an area called digital microfluidics, which is essentially uh, we, make, we would make these chips using some of the same technology you'd use to make like a computer chip. And you could use these chips to move little droplets of, of water or other liquids around um, just by turning uh, voltages on and off. And you could use that to basically miniaturize uh, the research lab and, and recreate what you do on the bench, but on sort of the microliter scale. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. Uh, before we get there, though, were you always, as an undergrad, were you a good student in the classroom? Or were, when did you find out that grad school was what, or research was something that you were somebody interested in? <laughs> yeah, I've heard this question a lot on the podcast, and, and there's a recurring theme that uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I fit into. So I was a great, great student in high school, you know, didn't have to work, didn't have to, to do too much to get, to get good grades, went to university, and, you know, had uh, my program did this wonderful multiple choice exam right before Christmas in, in the biology courses. And it was possible, actually, the way they graded it to get a negative grade. I did not get a negative grade, but I did not do super well on that and had a rude awakening. But I don't know if I really uh, woke up for a lot of my undergrad. So it took, took a while um, to sort of recover my grades. And um, part of that was maybe lack of interest, per se. There were a lot of distractions and a lot of, a lot of other things to do at university. Uh, we were told on our, on our first day in, in my college at Durham, our, our, the college master gave a little speech and, and welcomed all the new students. And, and one of the things he said was sort of a paraphrase of a, I think it's a Mark Twain quote that, you know, we shouldn't let our uh, lectures get in the way of our education. And I definitely seized uh, the opportunity to, to get involved in so many other things. But I had, I did have an opportunity to do like summer research between my uh, second and third year and that that was an okay experience it was really I think I liked being in the lab more than I actually liked some of the work that I was doing and I think at the end of that summer I said no not doing a PhD not going into academia definitely not doing that and then fourth year you know it was a thesis project for for the whole year in a research lab doing something completely different doing electrochemistry which was not something I had in in any of my undergrad lectures, and I was looking at interfacing uh, electrochemical sensors with biological cells, so the sort of hybrid between biology and chemistry, and, and that kind of, that got me excited, and being able to see how, like, you know, these are big research problems, but if you work at them for a long time, a little bit every day, like, you can actually do some, some really cool things, and, and these things have practical applications as well. Um, so I think it was doing that, that I kind of thought, you know, doing this thesis project that I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe research is something that I could do and, and that I would like, like to do. Um, and that's kind of what steered me away from applying for jobs in accounting and uh, other sort of financial services things and more into uh, research and science. 
And one of the things I forgot to mention about Durham is that uh, there's a lot of people, like Durham isn't a town other than the university, right? There's a lot of people that come from everywhere across the UK to go to Durham. So you would have been there. Yeah. I was just thinking of that quote that your, your the headmaster had said about don't let the lectures get in the way of your education. And I was like, yeah, and there would be a lot of people who would be away from home for the first time. It would be a really cool campus experience, I think, in, in many ways. So uh, lots of good uh, relationships forged there. We, we, keep, we keep directing in this direction. I mean, I think if we fill in the gaps, it was a PhD and then you went right to Basel, right? Is that correct? Or was no, I, I took a year. I had a, uh, I guess I would call it a victory lap uh, in Toronto. So I had, um, at the end of my PhD, I had the opportunity that um, my supervisor, Aaron, was working on a big CIHR collaboration with a new professor in pharmacy, uh, Keith Party who had come up to U of T from, from Boston, from the Wies Institute. And they were doing this uh, collaboration on these point-of-care diagnostic tests for uh, Zika and chikungunya and dengue virus. And they needed sort of a project manager to help sort of manage the international collaboration side of things, but someone who also knew the science that was going on on the Toronto side. So I kind of did a hybrid postdoc research manager position for, for a year. Uh, and then uh, moved to Basel, August 2018 to start to start my postdoc. Cool. Okay. And that, bring, that now brings us full circle. Okay. So you've been talking. We've been hinting at this a little bit about what the the research that has inspired you has been. So what it, what is the research that you're going to do uh, when you come to Ryerson? And and maybe more specifically, let's start with just what is what are microfluidics? Because as opposed to macrofluidics, <laughs> like well, what is the difference? I guess let's start there. Yeah. The tutorial. Great question. Yeah, so microfluidics, it's, it's kind of what the word uh, sounds like, micro, small, and fluidics, fluids. Um, so it's a term to describe a whole bunch of different technologies that uh, manipulate fluids. And the thing that unites them all is that there's some uh, characteristic length on the order of tens of microns. Um, and so uh, like in what I'm doing in, in my postdoc right now, we're working with these microfluidic channels. So these are small channels that have like widths of, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 microns in, in, in width. Um, and we use these to miniaturize a lot of uh, biology and chemistry experiments. Um, so it's, it's really, yeah, small fluids. And, you know, there are many different applications for it. One um, that's really popular is, uh, you know, as you miniaturize your lab, procedures and experiments, you can take them out of the lab. So this idea of point of care testing, um, where you could, you know, take a small sample, like a drop of blood, put it in a little cartridge that's connected to a cell phone or some sort of reader. And after 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you get a, a result for, you know, infectious, infectious status or um, your glucose levels or, or, or something like that. Um, but there's also a lot of research into exploiting different phenomena that happen at the microscale. Physics is a little bit different as you get smaller and using that to uh, advance our understanding of biology and chemistry. So one area that's of particular interest to me is basically using small volumes to confine biological cells. And if they're confined in small volumes, that means um, from an analytical perspective, the concentrations of the things that you might want to measure are actually quite high. Uh, because it, you know, volume is, or concentration is the amount of something divided by the volume that you find it in. And so if you, you can't change the amount of what's there, but you can change the volume, you can really uh, change the concentration and maybe work at a concentration that your instrument could detect. So that's maybe a brief overview of microfluidics. I was just, as you were saying that, I was just, I yeah. was wondering, like, when you think about how a blood vessel or blood vessels and how small a blood vessel would get, you know, at different yeah. points, not your artery, but you're getting down into those microfluidic realms too, right? So you would be able to more, or like those sizes, the dimensions, so you'd be able to more accurately look at flow behavior of cells too in a microfluidic device, presumably. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who are more interested in the biology side of things and looking at the physical properties of cells uh, in microfluidic uh, chips. So they're basically building these tiny instruments to measure how squishy a cell is, how deformable a cell is. And there are people who are also, you know, using microfluidics to make models of, you know, the vasculature that we have, right? So actually looking at capillaries and artificial capillaries 
and looking at uh, transport phenomena across capillaries. So looking at nanoparticles or drugs and trying to understand, you know, how do they get across from, from the capillary into the, you know, the tumor that they're targeting or, or the cells that they're targeting, sort of looking at sort of like that last mile problem in, in drug delivery. Cool. Yeah, so there are lots of things you can do with, with cells and, and microfluidics. So, so what are you going to do when you get to Ryerson with microfluidics then? Yeah, so I'm, I'm mainly interested in combining um, electrochemistry with microfluidics. So building tools that contain um, miniature electrochemical sensors that you can use to monitor what's going on inside or outside uh, a cell um, and using microfluidics to really give precise control to the experimental conditions and to allow you to uh, to automate uh, these experiments. So, you know, the idea of sticking an electrode near a cell is, is not a new idea. They've been doing it with, in, in neurophysiology for 40, 40 years, maybe with patch clamping and, and these carbon fiber microelectrodes. But these types of experiments are done with a lot of manual manipulation. You have to do it under a microscope with micro manipulators and get everything lined up in the right state. And what I'm looking at doing is, is building chips that will kind of automate all of that and allow you to monitor in real time what's going on with the cell. How is the cell responding to a certain treatment? What is it secreting? Is it secreting any factors that you're looking for in particular? And electrochemistry is a really versatile analytical technique. You can, you can use it for everything from on the bioanalytic side to measuring you know, nucleic acid concentrations and proteins or more traditional chemistry things like, like pH or uh, presence of, uh, of other ions uh, with ion-specific electrodes. That's cool. And I'm, I'm a big fan of electrochemistry. So I was just fascinated with all the things you could do. In fact, you could even introduce electrochemical drugs or electrochemically tag things into cells too, if you wanted to, to look to see yeah. how they would interact because now you'll be able to detect them. In addition, it's just another tool that you're creating yep. uh, in order to analyze stuff, which is fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, okay. So you, I normally would ask questions about, you know, what you like best about your job, what you like, like least, but you don't know what your job is going to be like. So I'll ask you two questions instead that are kind of similar. What do you think will inspire you the most about being a professor? Oh, <laughs> what will inspire me the most about being a professor? And what I we'll think... do is in five years after you get tenure, we'll go and we'll, re we'll replay this conversation on audio <laughs> over, over some drinks and see if it was true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned the five-year thing because I, I think it's going to be seeing where my students end up after, after I've worked with them. So not just like where it is students who, you know, I, I work with on, on thesis projects or lecture, you know, on, in you know, get to know my students through like third and fourth year lectures um, or, you know, the PhD students, like where do they end up immediately after, but, you know, where are they five years down the road and, and um, how has their time at Ryerson and the time that I've been able to have with them, how has that sort of affected their career or impacted um, their lives? And, you know, the, there's this funny thing that like we go to university, we do our undergrads, we, we study, 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 some more than others. Um, <laughs> Basically, we, we think it's a, that's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> we think, you know, uh, we think it's all about content and learning things. And then like five, 10 years down the road, like I don't remember most of my undergrad lectures and, and you know, we did so many mechanisms and organic chemistry. Like I, I don't remember that, but you know, I remember um, certain professors giving anecdotes about problems that they were contracted to solve or, giving insight into, you know, where we find different uh, inorganic compounds in our daily lives or around the world. And, you know, it's these few snippets that you remember and not, not so much the content um, and just sort of, you know, wondering, you know, I hope I could be inspired by what students do remember and how that impacts their life. Um, hmm. yeah. That's good. You hope to, you, you, you look to be inspired by being inspiring. Yes, essentially. <laughs> that, that's that's good. That, that, I like it's, it's a good feed, it's a good like feedback it. loop. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it, and if it, yeah. Okay, so then on the counter side, what worries you the most about this job? 
and again, these are not uh, real things because you you yet to experience it. But what what are you what are you most concerned about going into starting your career? Uh, um, I'm not worried about failure because I've already been applying for grants and I've already been rejected uh, so far. Uh, <laughs> you, you knock the you knock the, the, the dirt off those tires, kids. Okay. I I'm worried. I'm worried of um, getting lost. Uh, and what I mean by that is you know, one, of, one of the things that I'm looking forward to about, you know, the academic job and working at Ryerson is, is the academic calendar and having sort of, you know, the semester always proceeds, right? Um, you keep having to get to your next lecture the following week. It, it keeps going. Um, and I feel like you could get lost in allowing that to dictate the research program and my own career development and getting on a treadmill and just doing things to, to, you know, make it to the next September or make it to the next, you know, grant deadline and miss the, um, the excitement of research and miss asking good questions, um, miss doing exciting things, um, because they're exciting and, and, you know, feeling like you're just doing things just to get to the next step. Like, okay, you know, someone's PhD project is coming to an end. There's an opportunity to maybe do some really cool science, but there's also a need to, to finish the student and help them get that thesis done. Like, I'm worried that I would prioritize the, the smaller things and, and getting to that next deadline over seizing opportunities for for cool research or, or for things that, you know, um, make me passionate and, and my students passionate about, about their work. Does and that so make it's sense? The rat race. Yeah, no, it's the rat race. Yeah, the I, rat, yeah the, not even the rat race, just, just, I think the treading water. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's another good analogy. I was just going to say, sometimes you feel like you're just, just so deadline driven and then you miss the nuance of the beautiful thing that you're doing where you, you feel like you're trying to get to these targets, but why are you doing that if you're just so target driven? Cause you're missing the nice part of science. Like the, 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 Oh, did you see that? We should go and investigate that for a chapter of your thesis. Right. But you yeah. may not want to do it because it's high risk, low reward or potentially right. Um, or yeah. high reward, but it's still science. It's good science. And so I totally, I totally get that. And the other thing I, I'd say to all of my peers is that we're, especially for our junior members coming in, we're here to help. Like, like, like to give that advice, to give that counsel, to, to share, our, I wouldn't say our wisdom, but at least our experience. The thing is, is that, and I didn't take advantage of this because I, I, I think it, the system took it from you, but I, I didn't ask for help. Like I've never, you know what I mean? I did like, no one's going to go to you and say, Hey, how are you doing? You're doing good. Okay, good. Like we don't have time for that. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately we don't have time for that. But if someone says, let's go get a drink and just talk about some stuff, I got some ideas I want to bounce off you. Right. Like, and everyone says, sure, right? That, that, but it's one of those things that, that we have to stop it. We have to slow it down. Like we literally have to do it ourselves and, and take that initiative. So I, I think certainly I know that my peers, the people that I get to work with and soon to be you are all like that. They're willing to help. They're willing to support and they're willing to bounce ideas, but they'll, you just have to remember to ask. Um, and I think that's the thing that, that you, you won't remember to do. <laughs> which is strange because it's not something you're used to doing. Right. Um, but we're, we're here for each other and we are in it together. Cool stuff. Thanks. That's good. I'm glad you, uh, I love, like, like how you were so honest there. Okay. So what is the, what would you say from a student's point of view is the most important transferable skill? So not necessarily a technical skill in the lab, but what do you like to see in students as they go through your mentorship process or what would you like to see? in terms of transferable um, skill development? Yeah, I, I think I kind of alluded to this earlier um, in highlighting sort of communication skills, but not just, you know, vague. I don't want to use the, the vague term communication skills, but I want to see a, students develop a confidence in communication. And so, and, and I think this is something that I've developed over the course of, over the course of my training. Be, like being able to recognize when you're, about to be a bad communicator and you know changing that before you do poorly communicate but also like yeah being able to explain things to people in ways that are meaningful to those people and and i just think about this every time i'm writing an email right um, email is the 
the great uh, um, obfuscator of communication, I think, right? It's very easy to write a bad email. And just yeah. thinking like in my, in my current work environment, it's a very international work environment. So having to think about like, what words do I use to, to get really the point, you know, to get my point across? Where do I get to inject humor? How do I inject humor? Do I do it in a way that uh, obfuscates or confuses um, the main point? Or do I do it in a way that, you know, actually brings a smile to someone? Um, but then also, you know, this extends to, of course, research and thinking about, you know, how do we communicate our results and, and uh, communicate it in meaningful ways to, to society and, and those around us, um, because they're the ones who are mostly footing the bill for our research. So um, they should be able to understand what we're doing. Um, but also, you know, being able to present yourself to an audience uh, at a conference of people who are jet lagged and, and half awake, uh, who are trying to sit through your presentation, but, you know, how do you make it interesting to them? And, you know, that's a skill that I think, you know, you might not go off into academia, you might not have jet lagged uh, professors and grad students that you need to keep captivated, but you might be in a boardroom trying to convince uh, investors or a board that, um, you know, this is the right decision that the business needs to make. And you need to do that in a way that brings value to, uh, to your audience. And, and I think, yeah, so I think uh, communication um, is, is the main transferable skill. I would like to see my students develop and, and, and grow, uh, grow in that skill and their time with me. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to pivot here into the, our rapid fire sort of funner questions just so they'll get to know you a little bit better. Um, so start with the first one. What factoid do my colleagues know least about me? And uh, keep in mind, you have a new set of colleagues. Or no, let's use the current ones. <laughs> Because that, then they'll know you a little bit better. You know, I don't I actually don't think my current colleagues know me all that well. Um, but uh, I was thinking about this because you know because I do listen to the podcast and I was thinking what what interesting thing could I share about myself? And I thought I would share. I used to in high school, I used to build electric violins, which music is something that's sort of dropped out of my life in the last ten years. But uh, uh, I did have a, a short period where I was designing and building electric violins. But you could have made an electric guitar, uh, presumably, too. It's, is, there's no real difference, is there? Um, there is a slight difference. So, I mean, with a violin, um, the transducer is different. You're using like a piezoelectric uh, transducer. Whereas, uh, because um, of the vibration, yeah. Yeah, you're directly taking that vibration from, from the strings to the bridge into the, into the transducer. Ooh, that sounds like a cool project. <laughs> Something an Arduino should be able to <laughs> tell us out what now. That would be neat. Even, even simpler okay. than that. It's all, all, all analog. Yeah. Ah, very cool. All right. That is, that's a great answer. Okay. What famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go for dinner with and why? I was thinking about this as well. I mean, these aren't rapid fire if I've, if I've heard these questions before. I know, but, but uh, that you're, because you're a friend <laughs> of the pod, then we'll let you off on that one. <laughs> great. Uh, I was, you know, a lot of people said these, you know, profound and prominent famous people. I actually, uh, I would love to have dinner with uh, Phil Rosenthal. I don't know if you're familiar with, with who I do he not is. know. He was I the creator know. of the TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond. And okay. he has a show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil, where he's basically the, the happy, friendly version of Anthony Bourdain and goes around the world eating his way through different cities. And he is just, I think he makes people, everyone he encounters, he makes everyone smile. He makes everyone feel good about themselves. And he's just really excited about food. And so one, I would love to, you know, just eat the food that he's eating. And um, so I'm, I'm in it for the dinner. Um, yeah. But also like that's his personality and way of interacting with people is something that I really, uh, wish I had and aspire to. And so I would hope that like, you know, maybe just a bit of his aura would, would rub off on me and I would um, be able to like learn how he does it and, and how he seems to, you know, just um, connect with people and, and make everyone feel good about doing something so simple as getting together around a table and eating good food. Awesome. That's a great answer. Okay. So what around that table, what would be your favorite food that you're, that you're eating? 
My favorite food would be, yeah. it would just be a big table of barbecue. <laughs> Brisket, barbecue. ribs. Okay. Okay. Brisket. Yeah, you could throw in some vegetables too, you know, uh, something yeah. smoked, something grilled, but uh, yeah, low and slow and uh, juicy and tender. Um, that right. would be my ideal meal. And what the beverage are you uh, drinking while you, uh, so what's your favorite beverage? My favorite beverage is going to be a weird way of describing it. Um, would be anything that I can brew. So I've dabbled a lot in all sorts of homebrew, um, be it uh, you know beers or kombucha, homemade ginger ale. And even though my beer that I've brewed has objectively not been very tasty, um, there's something about you know putting the time in and making something and, and anything that goes with fermentation. There's also like a delay where you have to just wait, wait a few days or weeks even um, before you can taste the fruits of it. And it's just, you know, homebrew ginger ale is really refreshing on a summer's day. Uh, kombucha, anything with a bit of fizz, um, anything yeah. I could brew. Nice. And, and so I've been brewing since COVID as well. And uh, I love the experience. Like, it's fantastic. Exactly the way you just described it. Um, I'm brewing from kits, so they're, they tend to be okay to drink. But I actually sample them along the way, except after that primary um, fermentation, because I, it makes you wonder, like humans, like after seeing the primary fermented product, they would have thought, oh yeah, let's drink this. Like that would have yeah. blew my mind that anyone would have said, we're going to do that. So whoever you were, whatever, wherever that monk is that decided to take it to the next step and then put it in bottles, well done monk. Okay. Yeah. What is your, uh, what, what is your favorite color? Um, I used to always answer this question with red, uh, but you know, I look around at all the stuff that I own or choose the color of and I, I think I default to blue um no strong preference really but okay so if i complete this sentence if you were not a university professor at ryerson you would like to be a pit master uh maybe like a competitive maybe like a competitive barbecue uh chef um i pit master i guess is the term um you know doing uh, uh barbecue either as running a restaurant or um yeah, entering into sort of barbecue competitions with a trailer, pulling up, you know, doing a 24-hour cook and uh, having fun along the way. But that's so, not I a don't know. financially responsible. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's, that's a good option. And um, there's a barbecue place out in Scarborough, out our way, that was just recommended to me. A slow barbecuing place. The Art of Barbecue is what it's called. And uh, mm. I, I heard it from some really good people. So good people who always trust their advice. So we're going to have to check that out when we get here too. Hopefully we definitely do. Okay. So something in the top 10 of your bucket list. Oh man, this is one I didn't prepare. Top 10 of my bucket list. I think, I mean, I've done a fair bit of traveling between Europe and North America. I would like to um, do a bit more traveling. Um, it'd be fun to go to Africa. I think I missed out on, on an opportunity to go to Kenya uh, for research. So I think it'd be fun to go to a place like Africa as well as um, travel around Asia and, and Australia. You know, these places just seemed inaccessible to me. Yeah, so I, I would say travel. Yeah. And Africa is the first stop on that world, uh, world adventure. Awesome. Who is, who is or was your favorite role model? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think, I mean, my parents have been definitely strong influences in, in sort of how I uh, see the world and how I go through it. But I think career-wise, I would have to, I would acknowledge that my PhD supervisor, Aaron, was someone that I definitely looked up to. And, and also, I think with a role model, it, it, it's not just, I mean, yes, you have people that you look up to that, um, that, that influence you. But I think there's also that element of having that active decision of like, I see that this person's teaching me and they're not teaching me in, in a way where, you know, they're sitting me down and saying, I'm going to teach you something, but, but they're modeling uh, behavior and actions. And this is something that I should pick up on and I should, I should study and I should learn. And uh, my PhD supervisor, Aaron was really good at, at modeling a lot of the soft skills that we talked about. Um, and also um, just, you know, helping me think about 
how do you strategically think about science? How do you, how do you cut through the bureaucracy and uh, the rat race uh, component of it and, and really do the things that are interesting to you? Cool. Um, what concerns you the most? So moving forward in this world that we live in, what do you find is most concerning? I think, and I'm not sure if this is the, a cause or a symptom, but I, I think there's, we're losing apathy. Um, sorry, not apathy. We're getting a lot of apathy. I think we're losing yeah. empathy. Empathy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I was thinking about this, like, you know, where did this start and where does this come from? And I think, you know, as technology has, has increased, we've made ways where we don't have to interact with people around us or with our communities. And, and you know, I'm thinking back like 200 years ago, um, when you start having, you know, transportation with, you know, the, the trains and, and uh, ocean liners and, and then the automobile, like, um, and then also as the economy has improved, like people haven't been tied to geographic locations and, and stuck in certain professions and trades, right? So like we have a lot of freedom to, um, if we don't like our situation, to get up and change something about it and, and leave that situation, which means we're not tied to our neighbors in the same way. And now with like smartphones, we're not even forced to interact with the people um, really close to us um, because we can always, you know, find a distraction on our smartphone. Um, and I think that's, you know, this, this lack of empathy um, is a lot of a cause for some of this, you know, uh, political divisions that you see uh, in the U.S. And, and, you know, it's, we, I don't think we can deny that it's not creeping into, into Canada. It's in the UK and, and uh, around the, at least uh, Europe. Um, and this, you know, idea of being able to live in these little silos where you don't actually have to imagine what it's like to think, to be someone who thinks differently than you and to imagine what it's like that someone has different beliefs about something that you might even care really deeply about. And I think if we are more empathetic, um, we're less likely to be afraid of people who have, have different beliefs and we're less likely to be threatened by different ideas and different beliefs. Excellent. Yep. Uh, great answer. And what are you most grateful for? I, I think one, one thing is the job, uh, yeah. being able to come back to Toronto, uh, a city that I, I guess I've sort of adopted as, as, uh, as home and will, uh, will, will make my home for, for the years forward. Um, and my family. So my wife uh, came to Basel with me. She gave up working as a, as a staff uh, doctor at, at one of the Toronto hospitals um, to come and do this post, this crazy postdoc thing all in the hopes of, of landing an academic job. And while we were here, uh, she gave birth to our son. And so she's been spending a lot of time, all her time really taking care of him. So really, really grateful for her and uh, her support and that this crazy postdoc thing seems to have worked out. Cool. What's, what's your wife's name? So that we all uh, her name's, remember this. Yeah, uh, her name's Christy. Christy, and what's your son's name? Uh, his name is Enoch. E-N-O-C-H. Enoch. Enoch. Enoch, yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Okay, so what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? I really like camping in Ontario um, and haven't been for quite a while, um, either whether it's Algonquin Park uh, Massasauga uh, Park was one that I've recently been introduced to and really loved. Uh, it's the easy version of Algonquin, I would say. So I really do like getting out in a canoe and and putting the phone down and, and just getting away from everything and, and having to survive and do that survival in incredibly beautiful and peaceful Ontario nature. And I just got back from Bon Echo this past weekend and I have just recently bought a Kevlar canoe. And it was so amazing carrying that light canoe. <laughs> and it was, it was game-changing for my canoe adventures. You weren't going in an aluminum beast for the last years, have you? I would like, just rent whatever. Like, I would just okay. rent whatever they had. So it usually was a pretty crappy canoe. And uh, But now, yeah, having this, this I, I already put a scratch in it. I feel so bad. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I, and I can't wait. So we, we're going to go to these. Massasauga was actually on our list. Um, as well as Kawartha Highlands because they're sort of mm. canoeing friendly areas that you can get into and they're not too far from, from the city. Um, yeah, a little closer than Algonquin. 
So yeah, well, Jesus, we'll do that too when you get back. That sounds awesome. By the way, the canoe on the lake is a bit of a different story. <laughs> the open water yeah. is a bit scary, especially when this wind picks up. It's ridiculous. Um, okay, so what is your uh, most productive time of day? Probably like 8.30 to 10.30, sort of morning. In the morning yeah. or the I'm not, oh, okay. in, in the morning. I'm not, I'm not a morning person in that, you know, I can just get up on any weekday morning uh, chipper and ready to start the day. Although since having... Uh, having my son around 6am has been the new wake up time. Um, but yeah, like I do like getting into the office and my best emails, best uh, paragraphs for papers, grants, all that's done before lunch. Um, and then the afternoon is sort of fighting the food coma to try and be productive. Yeah, me too. And that's when it's good to have those meetings because <laughs> then you could be one of those people falling off in the corner if you must. <laughs> so, all right. So uh, one more here. What is your uh, favorite hobby? Favorite hobby? Um, like cooking, but um, my approach to cooking and what I really like about cooking is, is um, like technical things or really like making something like like making the product. So um, not just like, you know, following a recipe and cooking a dish, but, you know, making cheese or um, like I've done things like, you know, simple things like making butter, making uh, fresh mozzarella, making, uh, you know, dry curing, you know, hams and, and bacons and things like that. So, and this is where sort of I stumbled into barbecue, like things that involve process and you get to eat the end product, but it's not, not just, you know, like your 30 minute weeknight, weeknight dinner, like making the ingredients yeah. from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. You're the kind of person people want to have around. right? <laughs> Ro that's roast, roasting good. coffee. Love, love roasting coffee. That's, that's a fun thing to do as well. Um, oh, wow. yeah, this, awesome. this type of making stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, we could do this all day. I've got one quick question for our student listeners. So what piece of advice would you, uh, would you give your um, second year self? Oh, second yourself. Yeah, I would give myself share the pub. I would give myself advice that that I received later, and I think I probably would have benefited from hearing a little bit earlier, which is you need to look out for yourself uh, in terms of your education, your career. Like, yes, there are people who are going to help you, and yes, there are people who want you to succeed along the way. Um, but that's not the default expectation. Like you need to think about the decisions that you're making and make sure that they're the right ones for you and not, you know, ones to make, you know, your professor happy or your classmates happy, but that you're actually um, doing what's best for you. Awesome. Take responsibility. And I underlined your learning, your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Darius, this has been fantastic. And um, in the interest of time, we'll cut it off there. I know your day is almost done because you're, you're five hours ahead of us right now. Six? Six. It's five o'clock. Yeah. Five o'clock. So thank you so much for uh, spending this, this last hour with us. Really appreciate it. And I can't wait till you join us and we can uh, try some of that barbecue and uh, in our canoe while drinking fermented beer. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds like... It sounds like an awesome day. All right. Well, thank you very much Thanks for, for having this, me. And, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye.